Let's stand together and we're going to read our text. We're going to just read the first two verses of Habakkuk chapter 3. I think that if you're familiar with Scripture, you probably have come across this particular verse, verse 2. It's, it's kind of a, a pinnacle in this book, and we'll see it together. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigianoth, and we'll talk about that word in just a moment. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. Notice that reaction there. He, he feared God when God spoke to him and all the things that God said. He said, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. What a wonderful prayer that would be for America today. In God's wrath, I think in a lot of ways, God's displeased with some things that are taking place in our country. But we'll see today, one of God's greatest abilities is that in wrath... He is able to remember mercy. And so let's uh, look at this text today. I'm going to preach to you this morning, I'm ready when you are. I'm ready when you are. Because I think that that's what the Lord is saying to us today. He's ready to send revival when we're ready to receive it. So let's think about it. Heavenly Father, I pray you speak to our hearts and minister to us today. We love you. We need you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as you know, I, I enjoy reading. I, I wish I could give more time to it, but I'm currently reading a biography on Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's somebody that I'm kind of fascinated with. Martin Lloyd-Jones was considered by some to be the greatest uh, preacher, really, of the, of the 20th century. Some would consider him that. Um, but he, he was a fantastic preacher, a prolific author, and those kind of things. Uh, he, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Calvinistic Methodist, so it's a little different than, than my theological framework, but I glean a lot from him. He's a Calvinistic Methodist, and, and this is a description of him in his biography. It said his belief was that if feeling could be restrained, it should be restrained. Okay, so I'm just giving you a kind of a flavor of what worship style would have been in, in his church, okay? So if feeling could be restrained, rest hey, restrain that right there, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so here, and I, I'm, I'm quoting from the biography I'm reading. It's about a 500-page biography. It says there that his audible interruptions uh, were not always appreciated. That, that's a direct, audible interruptions, that's what they called him. So here I'm always telling you, hey, say amen. I, I want to know you're out there, you know. I mean, I, like, it, it helps me. And if I say something funny, it really bothers me if you don't, I know that's funny. Why aren't you laughing? You know, that kind of thing. So he did not like audible interruptions, and his church started growing, and people were being added, and, and it was really impacting this, this Welsh town where he was, he was pastoring. And so, it, you know, I, I heard a preacher say once, uh, the gospel net draws some strange fish. And so different people were, were coming that weren't accustomed to the way that he, he wanted things done. And so he had a guy that was providing, and I'll use their language, audible interruptions. So he was saying amen and praise the Lord, and he was, he was reacting a lot, and this was bothering uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. So he had a, an assistant by the name of E.T. Rees, and he asked his assistant if he would address the issue. So one particular service, E.T. Rees, I had to read this twice because it, it fascinated me. He, he, he went back and he sat where this man, man was, and the man got going in the service and hollered out, amen, you know, something like that. And E.T. Rees leaned over to him and said, Brother, I am sure you would like to see souls saved, wouldn't you? 
This is good. I mean, how, how do you answer that question, right? You know? And this guy said in a very boisterous way, he said, I would, hallelujah. And this is a direct quote from the book. I, I'm, I'm not editing it at all. E.T. Reese said, well, shut up. Well, I want to remind you this morning, I tell you that because Ecclesiastes 3.7 says there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Think about it this morning. As we've journeyed through this little letter of Habakkuk, we've noticed something that really addresses the spiritual climate in our culture today. We live in a spiritual climate that encourages man to express himself to God. It's okay to ask questions to God. It's okay to express your emotions. And I would agree with that. We, we live in that spiritual climate today. I would agree with that. The Psalms are filled with people who had questions, concerns. They had, they had uh, uh, emotions that were over, overruling their life, and they came to God with those things. But that is fine. Habakkuk did that. You and I, I think, if you've walked with God for many times, have asked God why, and we have poured our hearts out to God. We, we have talked to God through tears. We have uh, expressed our emotions to God, and that, that's good. But I, I want to say to you this morning, what we see as we come into chapter 3 is that we also need to make room to stop talking. Sometimes it's okay to sit still. And be silent in God's presence. In fact, you'll notice in Scripture that many times that's the response that is given to God. Remember in chapter 2, look back at verse 20, the very last verse of chapter 2. It says, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. That is a, an appropriate response to the greatness and the magnitude of God. And that's what happened here in this particular dialogue that's going on between Habakkuk and God. God shows up and God says, well, hey, you've had your opportunity to talk. I'm going to answer you. And, and, and Habakkuk's response was, yes, sir. In fact, here's what one commentator said. He said, this prayer, meaning chapter 3 here, indicates that the prophet has no further case to make. He has pled his cause. He has concluded his dialogue with the Almighty. Now he leads God's people to an acceptance of the just and merciful orderings which the Lord has revealed to him. So remember, if you're just joining us, here's what's happened in the letter. Habakkuk comes to God and says, listen, uh, Israel is wicked and Israel deserves to be punished and God, you are righteous, so come down here and deal with them and do something with them so that we can have revival. He makes kind of some... Uh, demands on God almost, and they, they're, they're good demands. They're maybe right assessments, but God comes down and says, oh, oh don't you worry, Habakkuk, I'm going to do something. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, same people group, I'm going to send them, and they're going to come in, and, and they're going to, to punish you. And, and Habakkuk says, wait a second, you're going to use somebody more wicked than us to punish us? And God starts addressing this issue and what he is going to do. And again, when God is done speaking, Habakkuk has no other response than to just sit silent before God. And this prayer becomes a, a response that, that, that is proper to the direction that God has given him. Chapter 3 and verse 2 has really become a pinnacle passage on revival. And remember, this book in chapter 1 began with Habakkuk's burden for revival, but you'll notice he continues that same burden in chapter 3, but his spirit is entirely different. 
His spirit in chapter 1 is, you come down here and punish them. And get, get them you straighten them out. His response in chapter 3, we'll see as we, as we dissect it over the next couple of weeks, is entirely different. In chapter 1, he was burdened and he was frustrated. We can all relate to that. Again, I, I don't think there's anybody in this room that is paying attention that doesn't get frustrated by some of the things that we see on our news, some of the things that we see, decisions being made. I don't think there's anybody in this room that is not burdened by, by the, 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 the social debauchery that we, we see in, in our culture today. I think we, we all can relate to Habakkuk in chapter 1. God, why don't you do something about this crowd? And we're burdened and we're frustrated. And we're almost demanding to God to do something. But I think we need to take on the spirit in our journey with God that we see in chapter 3 that is prayerful and it's submissive. I love that attitude. God, thy will be done. Whatever you want to do, hey, I, I, I'm on board with your plan. It's a total change in his spirit and his demeanor and his interaction with God. It's as if he sings this song. I, I don't know if you were maybe in an old-timey church that might sing that. It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. You might sing it this way. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's, it's me, O oh Lord. And it's as if... It's if, if at first, he was saying in chapter 1, it's my brother, it's my sister, it's them, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. You know, it's like you see that t-shirt sometimes around, y'all need Jesus. And it's as if he was walking around going, y'all need Jesus. But when he comes to chapter 3, he, he kind of changes his tenor, doesn't he? He says, it's not them that need Jesus, it's me. It's not them that need God and Jehovah, it's me that needs Him. It's not them. It's not the world out there. It's, it's not the society out there that needs revival. It's me that needs revival. It, it, it was a change in him. In fact, he uses that word revive. A revive means to improve the condition of. That's why in many ways, revival, you have revival meetings. I love revival meetings. I got saved in a revival meeting. But the truth is, is, is a revival meeting, really, we're going to have one in March. And the idea is to improve the condition of. That doesn't necessarily mean that our church is in a bad state. Sometimes it might be, sometimes it might not. I think right now we're in a good state. But I think we could also say, hey, I, I still, even though, even though we're in a good state, I want to get to higher ground. I want, I want to improve my walk with the Lord. I want, to, I want to know more about Him. I want to be a better witness. I want to have a deeper prayer life. I, I, I want to improve the condition of I want to be revived. And, and that's what he prays here. He says, God, revive thy work in the midst of the years. Improve it, make it better. And here's what he's saying in this simple prayer in verse 2. And we'll see it expounded in, in the latter verses later. But, but, but here's what he's saying, especially in just verse 2 as we hone in on that. On that is he's, prepared for, he's prepared for this revival whenever God seems fit to send it. I don't know when you're going to. It'd be fine if you send it right now. But the key is, Whenever you decide to send it, I, I need to be ready for it. I need to be prepared for it. Remember Benjamin Franklin famously said, failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And Again, I'm not trying to chide you, but that's why we have a little bit of a worship time. But I wonder how many times Christians in, in good churches like this, in, in growing churches, in going churches, we, we come into services totally unprepared. We just come in. Come in, plop down, and get ready to go. Here he's saying, listen, I'm prepared. If you want to work, I am ready. 
It's like one country preacher used to say, I'm under the spout where the glory comes out. I know it's cliche and kind of silly, but I, I kind of like that idea that, hey, if God wants to turn the spiritual blessings on, I'm at least, I'm at least in position to, to receive them. So I want to give you this morning in the time that we have, I want to give you three preparations for revival. Three preparations for revival. I understand this isn't a revival meeting. I'm not, it's not Monday night in a church that I've been a guest speaker at, but we, we don't have to wait until March with a guest speaker to have revival, right? We, we, we want to have it. And this is the text that God gave us, and this is what God obviously recognizes you and I need to hear today. So I want you to see, number one, humiliation prepares the way for revival. Humiliation prepares the way for revival. In chapter 2, if you remember, we, we noticed that God listed a series of grievances that he had against Babylon. He, he used the word woe. Remember that? We walked through that chapter and saw all of these woes that were pronounced against Babylon. To refresh your, your memory, he said, woe to the selfish. He, he said, woe to the covetous. Woe to the violent. Woe to the drunken. Woe to the idolatrous. And we, we saw together that really our society uh, should take heed to these same woes because our culture, much like the Babylonian culture, has a problem with these same issues. And God pronounced woe on those things. Well, in chapter 3, Habakkuk heard everything God said in chapter 2. He recognized God said woe on this and woe on that and woe on this and woe on that. And he recognized that. And the Bible tells us there that in, in verse 2, he said, I've heard what you said. I heard your speech. I, I heard your pronouncement of woes. And notice his reaction. He was afraid. And the implication there of his reaction saying, hey, I heard what you said about these subjects and I was afraid. Notice this. Please don't miss this. The implication here is that the same sins that were prevalent in Babylon, he now recognizes they're prevalent in him. He recognizes, I've been sitting over here saying, these people and what they're doing, and, and, and look at this, and look at that. He's dealing with some of the same stuff, and he recognizes this in him. And, and, and the point I'm trying to make is, now you see, in chapter 1, you see an aggressive Habakkuk. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with aggression, but, but he's very aggressive at, at these things. But, but in, in, in chapter 3, you see a humbled Habakkuk. A change in spirit. I think this morning we have to recognize our need of humiliation. I want to present to you a, a verse that some of you already memorized. You know it. You see it in connection to revival-type settings. And that's found in the book of Chronicles when it says this, If my people, which are called by my name, and right out the gate you see what we're talking about today, shall humble themselves. And we've, you've, you've heard it directed properly. It says my people. It doesn't say those people. It doesn't say if that, if that crowd, fill in the blank. It doesn't say if that, if that abortion crowd or that homosexual crowd or that whatever crowd, if they all, no, it says if my people, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And what Habakkuk does here is he had to stop thinking that the Chaldeans were worse sinners than the Jews. He had to change that thinking. And that reality hit him like a ton of bricks because he realized that the, ca the captivity that God was talking about was an inevitable consequence of the godliness that had been rampant in his people for 100 plus years. 
I want to tell you, that shoe fits the foot of the church. I think for a long time, the church has been denying this truth. We, we, listen, the church as a whole, and I, I, understand, I, I, I understand Scripture, and, and I, I understand universal church and local church and all of that stuff, but I, I, you understand when I say that, I'm talking about churches, local churches all over America in general, that would be Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Unfortunately, over a long-standing period of time, we as God's people have allowed the latest isms and ologies to trump God's word. It is amazing to me how many people who profess to be Christians who allow the, the, the latest thinking of the world to dictate their life and their behavior. And, and it is amazing to me how we have allowed our emotions to dictate what we, what we do instead of our principles. We, we have made the same mistakes. We must reckon with that. I'm going to tell you, I, I like the grit of some guys. Maybe we wouldn't employ that same spirit in our ministry, but there's a place for it. Old Billy Sunday. You remember Billy Sunday? He was known for being very bombastic and very in your face, and he was very, very aggressive against the liquor trade and those kind of things. And Billy Sunday once said this in a sermon. He said, when the, and if you think that I'm, I'm a bit bold, listen to this. He said, when the consensus of later, latest scholarship says one thing and the word of God another, the latest scholarship can go plumb to hell for all I care. I, I kind of like it, to be honest with you. I like a little chippiness like that, if you haven't noticed. Uh, but, but man, I think how, how, that, that'd go over like a lead balloon in most churches today. But I think what he's saying is absolutely true. Understand. Understand many of the problems that we despise today are consequences of our own sin. And what has happened to many of us is we are guilty of seeing only the problems of the world and we are incapable of seeing the problems of ourselves. Let me ask you a question. It's a pretty profound question. Does the fact that there are others that are worse than I am mean that I am all right? But yet God's people have acted that way. Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to chide you. I'm just trying to preach the Bible. And I think if we really want God to bless our ministry, we really want God to bless our homes, we really want God to bless our lives, and we really want God to bring healing to our land, then we must recognize that it begins, it begins with this attitude that says, hey, I, I, I got a log in my own eye. I am humbled before God. I, 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 I'm not saying we turn a blind eye and we don't, we don't speak out about these things. God spoke out about those problems and he pronounced woe on those cultures and those kind of things. And, and man, may God raise up more young men to surrender to the call to preach his word. And may they be like prophets like John the Baptist and Elijah in the wilderness, raising up their voice like a prophet pronouncing woe on the wickedness of a society. We need more of that. But at the same time, it should not cause us to be, to be uh, angry and, and, and wishing the judgment of God on people. No, 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 it ought to cause us to be humbled. To be humbled. I've heard thy speech. You caused me to recognize what you think about others and realize I should be very afraid. Interesting. Number two, I want you to see this. Adoration prepares the way for revival. Look at verse one. 
a prayer for Habakkuk, a prophet upon Shigianoth. Again, if you think you pronounced that wrong, yeah, good luck with that yourself, pal. This word is only used two times in the Old Testament. It's used right here in this verse, and it's used in Psalm 7. Really, uh, what, what we have come to understand this word to mean is it's a passionate psalm with strong emotions. Uh, it, it, it carries the idea of having a, a loud cry in a time of danger or, or even a time of joy. And so he's basically employing this passionate and emotional prayer in chapter 3. And it's likely that he uses this this word here, this fancy word, he he uses this word because it's likely that he he turned this passionate prayer into a song. Now now think about that. I, I think sometimes we forget that, that a lot of the songs that we sing are prayers. For example, I, mean, I know we didn't sing it, but we heard the, the violin's uh, uh, duet that was played. Oh, for, uh, I trust you, but oh, for grace to trust you. That, that was a prayer in a song or a song in a prayer. Uh, higher ground. If you're paying attention to that, that you're, you're making a request to God as you're singing. So this wasn't uncommon. We've seen that in our studies of, prayer, uh, of the Psalms is that many of those are prayers that, that were put to music. Well, why, why does that happen? We... I think the reason that's done is we know by experience that song lyrics are easier to recall than just about any other form of memorization. So it helps us. I've used this quote with you before. What is sung in song is remembered long. There are songs I haven't sung in years and years and years and years. Good and bad. There are songs that I I, I can go back to my childhood and... uh, you know, only a boy named David, only a babbling brook, only a boy named David, and five little stones. Some of you that are old like me, you're like, ah, I sang that one. I haven't sung that song in forever, can recall it. Listen, there are songs that are secular and ungodly and unbiblical, and I can walk into a department store and hear it, and I I can jam that one. (laughs) You you understand? What's, What's sung in song is remembered long. And, and, and a lot of students of the brain have come to this conclusion that the brain retrieves songs the same way we retrieve motor memory skills. Like, for example, you've probably used this expression, ah, it's like riding a bike. Well, your brain has been trained in such a way to recall that motor memory skill, and we recall songs the same way we have recalled things like riding a bike. And so Habakkuk puts this prayer in song form and I think it's because he wanted his people to remember its contents. Well, what is it that he wanted them to remember? He wanted them to know that despite everything he had questioned and everything that he had wrestled with, that God still remained worthy of praise. So why don't you remember that the next time you plop down on your comfy chair and turn on Fox News for the next three hours. And you get aggravated and frustrated and, and, and irritated and, and, and all of those aided words that we can think of. Remember that in spite of what you're seeing, in spite of what you're sensing, God is still worthy of praise. And I want you to notice what he points out in this verse, and it's something that we ought to praise him for today. One of the most praiseworthy attributes about God is his ability 
to remember mercy and wrath. In fact, I think you can make the argument that that is central to our entire faith. You say, what do you mean? I want you to direct your attention to this cross right here behind me. Think about what that represents to our faith. Folks, that's more than a decorative piece in our baptistry. That's more than a piece of jewelry around your neck. That's more than something that you hang on your wall to indicate to your guests that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. It is central to our faith. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Oh, I'm about to explain. Buckle up. Whenever you look at that cross, I want you to think for just a moment. I know the the good connotations that it brings to our mind, and that's wonderful, and we'll, we'll emphasize those in just a second. But I want you to also pay attention to this cross or any other image of that cross and understand that that is the most vivid display that you can imagine for the wrath of God. So I, I couldn't adequately describe this to you, even though preachers before me and preachers after me will try to illustrate it the same way. You know, I have five children, I have two sons. Let's use the imagery of sons just because uh, Jesus is portrayed to us in male form and, and as a son. I have two sons, think of my oldest son, Matthew. I, I love my, all of my children. I love both of my boys. But I don't take my firstborn for, for sake of illustration because of biblical content. It blows our mind to think that Abraham was willing to offer Isaac. It blows our mind to think that the Heavenly Father was willing to to kill His only Son. And we we think of the horrific death that He experienced. The nails in His hands and His feet. The spear in His side. The crown of thorns on His head. The brutal whipping. The beating. The mocking. All of that. And God permitted it. He allowed it. He allowed His own Son to endure that. Why? And I think sometimes we in modern Christianity that emphasize the grace and the love and all of these things. And we'll get to that in a moment. We'll get to the mercy. But I think we have overlooked the fact that the cross is a symbol of exactly what God thinks about your sin and my sin. It is a picture of His wrath. And it's often lost in modern Christianity today. Maybe we need a good dose of what Habakkuk felt. I've heard your speech and I was very afraid because we deserve your wrath and we know what your wrath entails. And friend, we need to be reminded on a regular basis exactly what God thinks about our sin. He hates it so much that He is willing to pour out His wrath in justice on His very own Son almost unthinkable but friend we aren't you thankful that we don't have to stop there let's turn our attention to the cross again not only is it the greatest image of God's wrath towards sin it is also simultaneously at the very same exact moment an incredible display of God's love and his mercy and that's why we're so fond of it. That's why we don't put it there because it signifies His wrath to us. We, we get, we get his great, where sin abounded, God's grace did much more abound. It overshadows it. And so we come in this morning and we say, man, God in His wrath remembered mercy. So I want to say to you today, church, Habakkuk paused and he said, you know, Adoration, God is worthy of this. If the Chaldeans come in and take us all away, God's still worthy of praise. God sends them packing home, God's still worthy of praise. And I I just want to just challenge you this morning, when we as a church start singing and praising His name, 
Revival won't be far behind. Listen, you can tell things about a healthy church or an unhealthy church when you walk through the doors. So I've, I've preached in, in dozens and dozens of churches. And I've walked in churches and gone, ooh, something going on here. You can feel it sometimes. Some of you are nodding your heads. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. And you can walk into a church and you can, you can kind of tell if they're doing well. Ah, this, man, this place is exciting. This is great. This is, this is awesome. You know, one of the tell, uh, telltales that I see in a healthy church is people actually like being around each other. You know, like if you say amen and everybody scurries out of here like cockroaches when you turn the lights on, and that's not good. Like something bad is brewing in a church like that. Like, well, I was here. I did my duty. Get me out of here. But man, when you, when you have to say, all right, folks, I locked the door. I'm turning the light off. You, you stay as long as you want, but I'm leaving. That's a good sign. You know what else is a good sign? When, when people sing well. And you say stand and sing, and everybody's like, Something ain't right there. See, the natural reaction to being overwhelmed by the greatness of God is wanting to sing. And that means people who aren't predisposed to sing. That means, I mean, come on now. If you've been in church for a while, you ever been standing near somebody singing really loud and enthusiastic, and they were really bad? Yeah, yeah, come on now. I would ask you to raise your hand, but you might have been sitting by them today. <laughs> but it's like you just can't help it, right? See, when we magnify His grace, we magnify His might, His power, His goodness. And friend, it's preparing the way for revival. Thirdly, I want you to see this. Humiliation prepares the way for revival. Adoration prepares the way for revival. And number three, petition prepares the way for revival. The petition wasn't, I want you to notice this, what petition meaning what he's asking for. The petition wasn't that captivity would be abolished or that suffering would cease. He didn't ask God for that. He didn't say, oh God, we, now, now look, we've humbled ourselves and I'm praising you. So, would you change your mind and not send the mean old nasty Babylonians in here? Would you, would, you, would you mind changing your mind about that? He never asked that. Notice what he asked. He said, revive thy work in the midst of the years. Here's what he's saying. He said, I know that what you told was going to happen, the Babylonians coming here, that's inevitable. You said it, it's going to happen. And, and, and this is what he said too. I, I understand that that's not only inevitable, it's deserved. But he makes the petition not to uh, delay or suspend the punishment. What the petition was, was for God's work. So if you mark that, mark that, that expression, in the midst of the years. He, he says it twice. And basically what he's saying here. And my understanding of this is he's saying, while the terrible things that you prophesied are actually taking place, revive your work. So, so let's, let's apply that to Oakwood Baptist Church. 
We could say this. While evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse, revive your work. Do you believe God can do that? I believe he can. Hey, more and more young people, and I'm trying to be very careful here, more and more young people seem to be confused about what gender they are. In the midst of all of this crazy confusion, revive your work of youth ministry. Raise up a generation of people. They're not confused. They know who their creator is. And they know who he created them to be. When faith is declining, church attendance is down. I was just hearing something recently like you might have heard on the news. Ever since COVID happened, church attendance was declining anyway. It's declined even further, especially among people in their 20s. People now get to the age 20 never even dawn the door of a church of any kind, of any stripe, of any flavor, of any doctrine. You know what I say? In the midst of thy years, America may be getting exactly what America deserves. In the midst of your years, at least, at least clear off a patch of land on 304 Pyramid Dairy Road where you're reviving your work in the midst of all that stuff that's going on. Remember one of his prophets said there's going to be a famine in the land. It's not a famine of, of food and water. It's a famine of the Word of God. Well, then God, in the midst of a society that is increasingly more and more biblically illiterate, that doesn't know uh, Genesis from Revelation, doesn't know Malachi from Malachi, raise up a generation of people in this place that has a good grasp of what the Bible teaches and what it means. And not only do they have a good grasp of what the Bible teaches, it has a good grasp on them. Do you believe God can do that? Because I think some people sit around and think, man, I tell you, America is going to hell in a handbasket. Look what's happening here. I say, in the midst of all of that, God, revive your work. Because what is happening may be inevitable. It is maybe part of God's redemptive work. It may be what God has decreed should be done. And I am, that's fine. Let God do what God's going to do. And by the way, we must come to a humbled place where maybe that's just what we deserve. But I believe in the middle of all that, God can still revive something right here on this sacred patch of land, in our homes, in our lives, in our places. Basically, I would say, along with Habakkuk, make the church as it's meant to be. Make it function as it ought to function. I'm burdened that churches all over this country have degenerated into a B-list entertainment club that has just been marketed for the masses. That's not what God's church should be. I hate it that religion has been reduced to some habitual ceremony and ritual. Nothing about what we've done this morning to me is habit. Oh, it's just I get up and Sundays it's what I go and do and, I, and we go in there and we stand here and we sit here and we sing this and we do this and we listen to the preacher do his thing and then we yawn and walk out the back door and go eat lunch at grandma's and then we're done with our Christianity for the rest of the week. Friend, that ought not be the way we are. Religion should not be reduced to just some habitual uh, ceremony and, and, and something that's ritualistic in our life. No, it ought to be real to us. I'm afraid that morality has just been based on whims rather than the word. It sickens me. Your so-called Christian people base their morals and their convictions on the culture or on what's going on in their own family. It's amazing how many people are against something until it's one of their children. 
our convictions and whims are based on how we feel on a particular day? I get sick and tired of even hearing Christian people present situational ethics as if God didn't mean what he said based on what you're experiencing in your life. Vance Havner, I believe Brother Danny told me Vance Havner preached at Oakwood in years past. Vance Havner, very witty, kind of country type fella, he said this, the church is so subnormal that if it ever got back to the New Testament normal, it would seem to people to be abnormal. <laughs> and it's true. But I will say this to you this morning, and we'll get out of here. Spiritual awakenings come when God's people connect their prayers to God's purposes. So we close this morning saying this, the problem, I think we would all admit this, we'd all recognize this, the problem is not with God's power. It never has been. The problem just might be with our preparation. I mean, let me ask you this. If God sent revival to us today, could we even handle it? I hope we'd be ready for it because I believe, I believe in a lot of ways God's looking at us and saying, I'm ready when you are. And I'm real good at in wrath remembering mercy. So in all the things that are going on in this world, in America, hey, I'm real good at remembering mercy and wrath. You ready for this? Can you handle it? I, I, I've lived long enough to see, I've seen some, some wives or husbands pray for their spouse to get saved. And then when finally God saves them, it's almost like the spouse goes, yeah, I didn't want them to get that saved. <laughs> and I think there are churches that way. Oh, God, do a work, do a work. And then when God starts doing work, wait a second, this is getting radical here. I mean, I wanted God to work, I just, not that much. <coughs> So again, I ask you, if God were to begin a work in your life, if God were to begin a work in our church, would we be prepared for that? Are you humble? See, here's what happens in a lot of churches when God starts sparking revival and all the things that come with it. Churches start getting real, yeah, I'll tell you what, we got it figured out. We know how to administer, we know how to do this. We hey, listen. If God blesses it, it ought to drive us to our knees and go, I, I can't believe this. Amen. Are you humble? Do you constantly humble yourself? We all know, right? God resisteth the proud. I don't know about you, I don't need any more resistance in my life. I'm dead sure don't need God's resistance. And God resists the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. We, we all know this truth. Let's just be reminded of it today. It's better to humble yourself than to let God do it for you. If you say, well, I, don't, I just don't, where, where can I get some humility? Why don't you go look at your fourth grade picture? I don't know what year of school it is for you. For me, it was fourth grade. You all have one where your hair is sticking up and you're, you know, it's just, it'll, it'll humble you. Some of you are like, every grade school picture was like that. And there you go. All joking aside, we do need to just be able to confess our pride to God. How's your praise life? 
Talk about your prayer life. How's your praise life? You sing? Sing in the shower? Sing on the drive to school? Drive to work? What's your uh, music list like? Filled with songs that are worldly and emphasize the things of order, or is it is it filled with songs that man bring honor and praise to God? Because your 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 adoration habit is just it's just like it's just there. You constantly give credit where credit is due. That's adoration. Are you praying for revival in our land? Instead of just getting ticked off all the time. I'm guilty of that. Man, you see some TikTok video of some crazy person and you're just like angry. Instant anger. Maybe it ought to just stop and say, God, would you help us? Would you help that person in that video? Would you help me? Will you pray? So our prayer is this year that God will lead us to higher ground as a church. Would you pray instead of saying, look at everybody else's, many people that have got all these problems, why don't you look at your own home and say, God, oh, I sure want to be a home where Jesus Christ is center, where he's exalted. Make that your, your prayer, your desire. I hope the Lord will speak to our hearts today.